We all have so much coming at us each day. Today's guest reminds us that with great responsibility comes great distractibility. On this episode, how to get better at being more present. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 511. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Conversations, of course, so important to our work and being present. How can we be present? How can we be more efficient in the work we do so that we're able to serve well our organizations? the people we influence, and of course, be able to have joy and progress in our own careers. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert that's going to help us to do that effectively. I'm glad to introduce you to Dave Crenshaw. Dave develops productive leaders in Fortune 500 companies, universities, and organizations of every size. He has appeared in Time Magazine, USA Today, Fast Company, and the BBC News. His courses on LinkedIn Learning have been viewed tens of millions of times. His five books have been published in eight languages, the most popular of which is The Myth of Multitasking, How Doing It All Gets Nothing Done. He just released the second edition of the book. Dave, so glad to meet you. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. It's always nice to talk to a fellow Dave. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. This topic of being present and being efficient in our work, it's so important. And one of the lines in the book that I highlighted right away is this statistic. 40% of knowledge workers never get more than 30 minutes straight of focus time. That is really an extraordinary statement. Yeah, well, it's it's remarkable. That comes from a study from from Rescue Time, and I find that uh, for some of them, it's far worse. We are constantly getting segmented attention. In fact, I just saw someone who posted on my my LinkedIn profile how she was uh, consulting a manager who said that she was getting interrupted during her meetings eight to ten times because of Slack and the proliferation of communication methods that we have are not making us more productive. They're actually doing the opposite. Well, a lot of us have heard this word multitasking, and I think many people have heard about multitasking being a bit of a myth. And yet, (laughs) we still try to do it a lot, uh, myself included. So before we dive in on how we can do better, I think maybe it does make sense to dive in on this word a bit and, and define the word multitasking, because it is actually a fairly new word in the English language. It's not a word that's been around that long, right? Right. It didn't really exist until the advent of Windows. I mean, there were some random uses here and there, but it wasn't until we got away from having to pull out the disk in the drive and then turn (laughs) off the computer and put it back in. It wasn't until Bill Gates gave us Windows that the word multitasking came into common usage. So we're talking the early 90s. And the problem is people borrowed that word and said, well, computers can multitask. I can multitask, but computers don't even multitask. What happens is uh, you're really switching rapidly back and forth between tasks. And when a computer does that, 
it starts to get hot. It starts to slow down, right? Just open, you know, 50 browser tabs in Chrome and you experience it immediately. Yeah. And when, when we say that we can do it, we're experiencing the same limitations. Things take longer, we make more mistakes, and we increase our stress level. So it's actually why in the book, I reframe uh, multitasking as one of two things. It's either switch tasking or it's back tasking. Ah, so let's look at those terms then. What's what's switch tasking and what's backtasking? Yeah, so switch tasking is where you're trying to perform multiple attention requiring tasks at the same time. For example, listening to this podcast while you're trying to answer an email. You're not doing both at the same time. You're just switching rapidly. And every time you do that, you're incurring cost that I mentioned before. Things take longer. You make more mistakes. You increase your stress. Backtasking, which is short for background tasking, is where something mindless or automatic occurs in the background. So that would be an example of listening to this podcast while you're running on a treadmill right? Uh That can be productive. That can be useful. But the problem is when most people say, I'm a good multitasker, they're talking about switch tasking. They're talking about, they feel that they have the ability to do multiple attention requiring things at the same time. And the science just does not back that up. What does the science say and the researchers about switch tasking and trying to do two things at once that do require attention? Well, and and I want to say this up front too. I do not consider myself the researcher. I consider myself the evangelist. So what that means is my job is to help people change behavior. And also my job is to help uh, interpret for the, the, the masses what the science is saying. So, you know, credit to this goes to, to people like, for instance, David Strayer, who's in my backyard at the University of Utah. They've done numerous studies. And they've found things like when you multitask while driving, it's as dangerous as driving while intoxicated. That if you try to issue a command, for instance, to your car, it takes 27 seconds to regain attention just for a verbal command. And uh, many studies out of lots of different places, uh, Michigan State, uh, Vanderbilt, that sort of thing, they found that the brain has a limitation. It cannot handle the cognitive load of multiple attention requiring tasks. It has to switch back and forth. And the more complex the task becomes, the higher the switching cost that you incur. So we're not able to actually biologically do this at the same time, even though it feels like sometimes we're doing two things at once. Uh, The reality is we're just jumping between them really quickly. Correct. The other piece that seems to always come up in this conversation is the lens of gender. Many of us have heard or been taught or believe that, okay, there's there's a difference in gender. And the most common belief on that is that women are better at multitasking or switch tasking, as we're talking about, than men. What does the research say on that? The research, honestly, is very divided on that. I've seen some studies uh, that have shown that there is a difference in in switching costs. There's a reduction for women. I've seen some that say there's no uh, statistical significance that there's a difference. I'm just going to bring it down to a personal level because as someone who has coached and and consulted uh, lots of female executives, I have found that they do incur less switching costs than men do. So if their attention switches, it's easier for them to regain attention. But there's a big but behind that. There's a big problem. And the, the, the but is, but they are still incurring switching costs. 
So saying that you're a great multitasker or that you incur less switching costs is like saying, well, I'm a little more effective at screwing up just a few less things than the other person. That's mm -hmm. not a goal that we want to aim toward. What we want to aim toward is single tasking, is focusing. You mentioned in the book, people who consider themselves great at multitasking are statistically more likely to be the worst at it. Yes. That, that's interesting because this kind of comes back to where we started on the awareness of this, of it being a challenge, and it's not something that we want to be good at necessarily. And yet, the people who try to be good at this end up being worse. Yeah, I think it's a classic blind spot issue. Often the thing that we pride ourselves on is really the thing that we're terrible at. And and, and again, what I do is I, I take what the research says, and that's, uh, by the way, that's also another study that's come out of David Strayer from the University of Utah. And, and I apply it from what I see every day. And I, when I see someone say, I'm excellent at multitasking, I know that they're probably excellent at screwing up multiple things. And my job is to help them understand that their behavior is not getting them what they really want. What people really want is they want to be more efficient, right? They want to be more productive. They want to do things in less time. And if you want to do things in less time, your goal should be on switches. Switches are the enemy. And every time you, you switch attention, whether it's of your own doing, where it's, it's active, or whether it's passive, meaning someone else caused you to switch attention, both of these things need to be reduced. If we can reduce them, you're going to get mounds of free time back into your schedule. You've had more experience than probably anyone else I've talked to on the show of helping leaders to recognize that and to take the first step. What is it that you find that is helpful for someone who is caught up in that and maybe doesn't realize, intends well, but doesn't realize how much they are switch tasking? What's the starting point for them to start to make that shift to realize that oh, maybe, maybe my behavior doesn't necessarily match my intention? Yeah. So I'm a big believer that talking about behavior is not an effective way to change behavior. The most effective way to change it is to help someone realize the truth for themselves. And the truth is they're making more mistakes, they're taking more time, they're increasing their stress level. So one thing that I do, and I do this in my speeches, it's in the book. And in fact, there's a, there's a link I can give where people can get it for free. One thing I do is a little exercise, a multitasking exercise. And we're simply copying letters and numbers and one time we do it while focusing, and then we do it another time while switch tasking, and people immediately experience in just a matter of a few minutes that everything is taking longer. They feel the stress. They see the mistakes that they're putting on, on the page. And that opens eyes faster than me lathering people up with a string of research that has been done. Yeah, indeed. Uh, this is so relevant for so many in our audience because in addition to us multi trying to multitask and switch task for ourselves, so many of us want to serve others well. And we have environments where people come to us looking for guidance and coaching and um, and resources, of course. And where we get into trouble, I think, as leaders is good intention all of a sudden leads to behaviors where 
there's a lot of interruptions happening. There's a lot of switch tasks can happen in the organization. And in fact, that's the focus of the book is looking right. at a leader who has gone down that road. How have you seen this manifest itself when it's not just the individual, but now it's a team of people that are starting to do this? Yeah. The, so I mentioned the three effects about things taking longer, making more mistakes, increasing stress levels, but there's a fourth effect. One exercise that I do with this, and, and you can do it if you're the leader of a team, is you just have people pair up and person A talks to person B for 30 seconds about something they like, a, a, a hobby, a family member, whatever it is, something they're passionate about. And the other person listens respectfully. Then what you do is you switch roles. And now person B tells person A about something they're passionate about, but the person they're talking to, person A, plays with their phone. They look through the papers. They're listening, right? They're giving partial attention while the other person's talking. And when I do this in my speeches, I ask people to yell out in one word, how did that make you feel for someone to switch task on you? And the word that I hear consistently is unimportant. Now, think about the impact that that has on people that you lead. If you communicate to them that they're unimportant simply by holding up your phone while they're talking to them, that's incredibly damaging. But the beautiful thing is the reverse is also true. Because this is common behavior, if you are someone who sets the phone aside, turns off the computer screen, refuses to look at email when you're on a Zoom call, you're communicating to people that they are important. The one word that is probably featured most prominently in your book, in fact, it's in giant bold letters halfway through, is the word when. And you make this invitation to give people a when. Tell me about that. We are addicted to what I call the culture of now. And the culture of now says, if I have a question, I want it answered now. I'm going to send you a text message. And if you don't answer the text message, then I'm going to send you an email. If you don't answer the email, I'm going to send you a phone call. And it just repeats over and over. And that perpetuates switch tasking. What we want to do is transition to the culture of when. And the culture of when is where you communicate to other people and you even create for yourself a schedule and an expectation as to when you're going to do everything. So I do believe you can respond to all those messages. You can respond to the questions. You can get your work on, done on time as long as you clearly establish a when. And if you give people a when, they're more comfortable with not getting it now, as long as you meet the expectation that you give to them. That's a, I'm guessing, a, a tough transition for people to make who have not been in the practice of doing that. When when you see people make that transition and start to get some traction, what helps them to actually do that? Uh, I think it starts with a conversation. And the conversation says something like this. Hey, I want to help you succeed. Don't make it about yourself, right? Don't make it about how you're getting annoyed. Make it about them. I want to help you succeed. I want to help get things to you in time. And, and the best way for me to do that is if we have a time when we talk with each other about these things, or if we have some guidelines about, you know, when I send an email, this is how long we expect a response. And you make it about how you're going to serve the other person. And then you create a set of, of rules or guidelines together that you're going to agree to. And are you going to follow them perfectly at first? No, but the more you talk about it, the more you practice it eventually you're going to start getting into a rhythm with, with each other. And, that, and that's a great place to start. 
So if I'm noticing that I'm getting a lot of interruptions, just getting to the point where we determine a time where we are going to communicate versus <laughs> the ongoing deluge of information, text, all those things that tend to happen in a lot of organizations, that's a key first step. Yeah, I love, I'm a fan of what I call one-to-one huddles. You can call them whatever you want, scrum meetings, standing meetings, whatever it is. You have a scheduled time where you ask each other all those quick questions. One of the, one of the worst things that happens in the workplace is what I call the dreaded double Q. That quick, excuse me, I've got just a quick question, right? But the quick questions will <laughs> chew through your day and you'll end up not getting anything accomplished. So then instead, if you have a time set aside with key people, that this is the time we're going to get together. We're going to fire these quick questions at each other. We're going to answer the quick questions and then we're going to get back to work. I, I, this one thing with one manufacturing company I worked with, it increased, increased their productivity overall by 20%. Wow. Just making that shift. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And, th- and then you can have the conversation with your team as a whole about channels. In fact, this is something new that I cover in the second edition that I didn't cover in the first 2008 edition because it's a different thing, which is we've got so many different channels of communication, Slack, instant messaging, text messaging, WhatsApp, whatever the heck it is we're using. And no one understands when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to use each of the channels. So people are using them interchangeably and they have different expectations about when people are going to respond. So if you can sit down as a team and say, all right, here's Slack. What do we use this for? And how long is it appropriate to expect a reply? And you have some discussion, you have a little debate and you get on the same page with that. And you do that with every channel of communication that you use with your team. I love that invitation. Uh, Tammy Bielen was on the show recently and, and made almost that same invitation of having a communication charter for your organization and figuring out what tools are being used for what, because that saves so much efficiency right there. And you, you make such a profound point in your work about attention in that when you don't have that when and you don't have a time people feel like they really have your attention then when they do show up for the quick question, as you mentioned, right, all of a sudden they feel like, oh my gosh, I have your attention. What else can I Mm -hmm. throw into this conversation? Because I don't know when I'm going to get your attention again. Yeah, I I call them them vultures. (laughs) You think about what a vulture is, right? What it does, its behavior. It, It circles in the desert I live in a desert here out in Utah, and it circles and it waits until the the carrion drops down, right? It drops dead. It's like, here's my opportunity. And they swoop in and they get a piece of it. Well, we have these vultures in our day and many of us are these vultures, right? Because we have people that we don't know when they're going to be available. And so we just kind of circle. And when we get our opportunity, we just grab on tight. And that's really a horrible transactional way to to deal with people. We start treating each other like human vending machines. If instead we can say, you know, I'm going to give you time and here's some time. And during that time, I'm not going to have anything else on my agenda. Just you. I'm just going to focus on you. I'm going to treat you as important. The relief that people feel is, is incredible. I love your challenge, too, that you mentioned this in the book of one of the indicators to watch for to see if you might be causing that as a leader is when people show up and when they're leaving, they they mm. sometimes have a behavior. Uh, I, I wonder if you could share that with us. 
Yeah, well, it's it is. It's that it, they, they, you have a conversation with someone and you get done. You covered what they covered and you kind of see them just hover. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see them going through their, you know, they're going through their mind because they're thinking, I might not get another chance to have this conversation with you again for a long, long time. I don't know when that conversation is going to take place. So hold on just a second. Uh, yeah. Okay. This too. Right. Yeah. And even sometimes because of that, that lack of a win, they start making up stuff. <laughs> they start uh, looking for things that weren't even there because of that anxiety that we're giving them without having a, a, a respectful scheduled appointment. It's such a good indicator for us all to watch for because we are all, I love how you said a minute ago, like, you know, we all can be those vultures too, right? Like mm-hmm. we, all of us cause this to some extent in our organization. So if, if we can watch for that indicator, that's huge. And, you know, I, the other piece of this too is just, I love that you said the word anxiety because part of this, in addition to be being efficient and productive is just having more joy in our interactions being more present oh, with people at a human yeah. level, right? And and if we're doing better at being present and not trying to switch tasks, then we're we're creating more joy and more humanity in the workplace. Yeah, and we're relieving stress. I and mean, that's one of the biggest things that I like to to point out, especially when we do that multitasking exercise that I mentioned is that people feel so much more stress when they're in doing multitasking, when they're switch tasking. And it doesn't matter what the activity is. It can be anything. You can be looking at your phone, playing Candy Crush, and someone interrupts you, and you immediately feel the stress. And that's your body communicating to you. What you're attempting to do is not helpful. <laughs> that's your brain saying, why are you doing this to me? Stop it. But we just persist in it because it's such a, a normal behavior. And when you can free yourself of trying to do multiple things at the same time, stress levels drop tremendously. And you do, you know, in fact, I heard a comedian, uh, uh, Joe Zimmerman, he said, I lost my phone the other day and, uh, you know, some things happened. I experienced joy for the first time since I was a child. (laughs) (laughs) And, And setting it aside does create that room for that joy to take place. I know you challenge people with with these two sentences. There's only one timeline. There is only one you. Yeah. Um, when you are challenging someone to think about timeline and how you're showing up, where do you begin? Well, I, one of the easiest places to start is just to to put an account down of where you're spending your time. There are 168 hours in the week, so let's take a look at how are you spending those hours in an average week? And so I'll just sit down with the client. I don't make them track every single minute. That's, that's too much work. It's, it's not necessary. We just kind of do a rough estimate. How many hours you spend sleeping? How much time you spending working? How much time you spend in different activities at work? The thing is, when I do that with people, they almost immediately realize that they are way off on their count. Uh, you know, the example I use in the book, and it came from a real client, she, this, this woman who's very successful uh, business owner, she was spending 190 hours a week. Well, how do you spend 190 hours <laughs> in uh, 160 yeah. hours a week? Yeah. Well, the answer is she wasn't. She was just doing two things at the same time that she thought she was doing it successfully. She thought 
she was spending time with her family while she was doing stock research. But what she was really doing was stock research in the presence of her family. Ah, interesting. So just by going through the thinking of how much time am I spending on different activities gets you real on the physics, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, there's you only so many hours. the truth. Yeah. Firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. So that's a that's a place for us to start as as an invitation of if you're wondering, hey, you know, how am I doing on this? Is just writing down like how many hours am I spending each week sleeping, eating, in meetings, one on whatever the activities are with family, and one indicator would be if that number's <laughs> above 168 substantially, that's there's somewhere where we're not being truthful with ourselves. Yeah. Well, and that's the next step afterward too, is then reconciling it. All right. We did the accounting, the numbers don't add up. So now we need to reconcile this account and make it right. And, and the book has an exercise that helps you walk through that, but it's the act of saying, all right, I thought I was spending this much time, but really I'm spending this time. Now, what do I want? And that I, I love asking that question with a client. Okay. You see the numbers now, what do you want? It's very eye-opening and liberating because most people aren't thinking about that. They're not thinking about what they want. They're thinking about how do I survive this week? But you can take control. Even if you work for a, a, a horrible micromanaging boss, there are still areas where you have control over your schedule. Maybe you don't have control of what happens between nine and five, but you do have control of what happens the other hours. And wherever we can regain control, that's where someone starts to feel like they can reduce the switches in their day and they can start to regain a lot of that time. Cool. Uh, speaking of tactics, I know people ask you a lot on what's the app to use? What's the right system? Uh, when you hear that question, what do you tell people? I tell them that the best app that they have is the one that they already have in front of them and they're probably not using, or at least not using fully. And that's the calendar. The, the calendar is the best app. And, and trust me, Dave, I am a geek through and through. I am a technology nerd. I love looking at the apps. I love getting phone upgrades. I love all of that stuff. And yet... Uh, in all of the stuff that I've done, there is no app more powerful than Google Calendar or your Outlook Calendar. And the reason why is it because it shows you the truth and it allows you to make strategic decisions about your week. But most people either are not fully using it or they're using it incorrectly. Mm. And I'm right there with you on that, by the way. I, I love the technology. I love all the apps and the technology productivity app I use the most is my calendar. And yeah. it it forces me to be real about yeah. what I can do. And and the other thing that I find for myself too is if I've spent the time to plan out my week, plan out my day, and I've gotten realistic about, you know, how much time do I need for email, how much time am I going to be in meetings, then when I'm executing on that during the day, the sense of joy <laughs> and freedom ironically i mean isn't that weird how like you feel a sense of freedom by having structured your schedule more but um, yeah. but it but it seems like when on those days that i've structured things out and i've really thought of like what can i what am i realistic going to use with my time then it frees me in the moment to be really present with whoever i'm present with 
Yeah. And and I would say, too, that I'm aware that there are some people listening to this who still would not agree with that. They still feel like it's limiting and it's restrictive and it would take joy away from them. And part of the reason why they feel that way is the misconception that every single minute can or should be scheduled. And that's not what I'm advocating. What I'm saying is that you should, you should budget time for these things and you should be generous with your budget and you should be generous with the gaps in between things. You should have buffer between your schedule. Whenever someone comes to me and they're like, Dave, I'm trying to follow what you do and I've got every minute scheduled, I stop them. And I say, you, you missed what I was saying because, because we actually want to underspend time. We live in a world where interruptions are going to happen. And everybody listening to this has a different percent of their day that's going to get chewed up. Some people can go you know, with maybe one or two interruptions. And some people live in an industry like technology or emergency response where they're going to get interrupted a lot. And you want to consider how often those are going to happen and then leave lots of open time in your schedule to respond to those things. That is a healthy budget because you're saying, I acknowledge that these things are going to happen. Therefore, I'm not going to put expectations on myself to do things unrealistically. And then let's say the interruption doesn't happen. So let's say that, that I allocated, uh, Dave, for this, I allocated 90 minutes for this interview and it doesn't take the full time and nothing got in the way. Now it's like I've got bonus time yeah. and now I can allocate that time in any way uh, that I choose. That's really what I'm advocating for the calendar. I really appreciate that invitation. I mean, it's so um, it's such a useful place for us to start, and it doesn't require going out and finding fancy apps and doing all that stuff. Uh, there's a time and a place for those, of course, but just getting uh, down. Hey, here's the time I think this is going to take, and and like I said, even if you ninety percent of your day is not your own schedule. Uh, although I think for a lot in our listening audience, that's probably not the case. But I, but I know there are folks that, that that is the case where the 90% may be someone else's time. Just finding that that half hour, that 45 minutes that you block that at least as a starting point. Because once you get once you start flexing your muscle, it's like a, it's like a good exercise program. You get stronger and you start being able to leverage it in different ways. Yeah. And you get accustomed to it. And I would say this, I'm a fan of, of Google Calendar. I mean, if you're on the fence, not knowing which one to do, I like Google Calendar for one reason only, which is it has a setting called speedy meetings. And what that does is it naturally, you can set it to default, which means it sets the meetings to 50 minutes or out of an hour or 25 minutes out of a half an hour. And that is going to naturally build the buffer into your day. It's, it's insane to me that we still are in a world where people are scheduling 60-minute appointments back to back. Who can operate like that? Mm. I mean, it's the basic needs of being a human being dictate that we need a little bit of space in between those things. So get in the habit of, of leaving some room and it'll restore so much sanity and so much peace to what you're doing from, from just a simple little alteration on your calendar. I appreciate you challenging on us on this. So uh, two clear invitations coming out of this conversation. One of them is the book, The Myth of Multitasking, How Doing It All Gets Nothing Done. The second edition has just come out, so folks will be able to grab that. We'll have all of the links in the show notes, of course, and the weekly guide that's coming out this Wednesday. In addition, Dave, I, I think that one of the things I'd love to ask you about 
is LinkedIn Learning. I've known of LinkedIn Learning. I've uh, I know some of my friends are doing courses on there, and I haven't gotten into much myself. But you have just done an amazing job of having millions of people involved in your courses, which is incredible. I wonder if you could maybe tell us a bit about LinkedIn Learning, how why we might want to utilize it, and maybe recommendation of a, a course that you've done that might be good for folks to look into after this conversation if they'd like to do more. Yeah. I mean, speaking of tools that are easy to use and access that can make a huge difference, LinkedIn learning is right at the top of the list for me. I I like to think of it as the Netflix of learning. So what that means is you have a subscription of some kind and you get all you can eat access to all of the courses. And, you know, the count is always updating, but last I saw something around 17,000 courses. I've been with them. I'm one of the the guys who've been with them the longest, uh, all the way back to lynda.com. If, if you've heard of that, oh, they got yeah. acquired we by We used LinkedIn. to use Lynda a long time ago. Okay. So it's the same platform. It just got acquired by LinkedIn. And so, and my most popular course happens to be the first course that I did with them. And it was their 1000th course uh, 10 years ago, which is uh, time management fundamentals. And you can access that at davecrenshaw.com forward slash time. And uh, that will take you through the same training. Like if you hired me to come into your office and do this with you personally for a day, I'd, I'd charge you 10 to $20,000 for it. You can get it on LinkedIn learning for, you know, whatever their monthly subscription is these days, I think it's like 30 bucks a month or 35 bucks a month. Or if you have a LinkedIn premium membership, like sales navigator or job hunter, that's already included with it. And man, they've got so much great stuff. I mean, for, for that kind of a cost, guys like uh, Kwame, right? You and I both know him. I know he, ha- he was on your podcast. You can learn how to negotiate. I, I On my team, I send team members to LinkedIn uh, from things like, Hey, John, I want you to start getting better at using After Effects on Adobe and their courses like that too. So I, I love it. I'm a huge advocate for it and highly recommend it. It's such an impressive platform. There's just so much wonderful content and courses there. So uh, definitely worth checking out. Uh, and thanks for the invitation about the course. I'll get links into that as well. And before I let you go, Dave, uh, I have one last question for you. You know, one of the things that leaders are often doing is, they're learning, they're growing, and sometimes they're changing their mind on things. When you reflect on the work you've done on multitasking in the book and the last few years of your work, what have you changed your mind on in the last few years? Yeah, I, I'm always trying to do my best to practice what I preach. And what that means is that sometimes there are areas for improvement. And you know, I've really noticed that I need to do a better job of saying no. And and that's such a funny thing to say because I've been advocating for, you know, 20 years that people do a better job of saying no. Part of my system is taking time off on a consistent basis. And what I've noticed the last few times that I've taken time off and I come back is I go, you know what? There's a lot of stuff that I thought I needed to be doing and I really don't. And the measuring stick that I used was, it was kind of goes back to that when principle. If I don't need to do it now, and I can delay it a week, can I delay it a couple of months? And if I can delay it a couple of months, can I delay it a year? And I started to realize, you know what, there, there are a few things I just don't need to do anymore. So I've changed my mind on, on some of the practices in my business and learned that I need to do a better job of following my own advice uh, of saying no. Dave Crenshaw is the author of The Myth of Multitasking and the host of a number of popular LinkedIn learning courses. Dave, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it, Dave. Had a lot of fun.
We've had many conversations over the years on how to be more effective by being more intentional. Several related episodes that I'd recommend for you. One of them is episode 417, Finding Joy Through Intentional Choices. Bonnie was my guest on that episode. We talked about how we make intentional choices, not only professionally and personally, and all of the things that we make the choice not to do in our lives. Many of you found that conversation very useful when we aired it. If you're looking for a bit more perspective on what to say no to, episode 417 may be just the inspiration for you. I'd also recommend episode 431, Align Your Calendar to What Matters with Near Aol. He was my guest talking about how to use your calendar well. As you heard in this conversation with Dave, the calendar is probably our most important app. If we can master that and be intentional with our time and our resources, we can do so much more, not only in being present for others, but also in being able to be more productive ourselves. Episode 431, a great introduction to using your calendar even more effectively. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 469, See What Really Matters with Greg McEwen. Greg is the author of the best-selling book, Essentialism. In that conversation, we talked about how to see what really is important, how to think about what's essential, and to, of course, make the decision to leave behind the things that may not be as essential in our work and of course, in our lives as well. All of those episodes you can find on the Coaching for Leaders website. There is a category called Productivity. There's also a category called Personal Leadership. You're going to find this episode filed under both, along with many other conversations over the years that I've aired since 2011. And if you'd like to get access to the entire listening library, searchable by topic, my invitation to you is to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. And when you do, you're going to get access to that entire listening library, searchable by topic. You'll also get access to all of my interview notes and book notes over the years from conversations where you can download the highlights of books, the questions that I've asked, plus access to my own personal library. When I find articles, videos, other podcast episodes from other podcasts online that I think will be useful for you, I put those in the weekly leadership guide every Wednesday, but I also catalog them inside my own library. You can access that entire library inside the website, also searchable by topic. It's a wonderful resource if you're looking for a credibility piece for a client meeting or you're looking for the best article or resource to share with your team during a team meeting. It's a wonderful starting point. I've cataloged everything for you, so I've saved you all the work of tracking down something that will be useful for you. And of course, when you set up your free membership, you also get access to that weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday in your inbox. All of that's over at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership and you'll be off and running with us going forward. I hope you have a fabulous week and I'll look forward to seeing you for the next conversation this coming Monday. Take care, everybody.